let's go ahead and get going. Uh, we've got a, quite a bit to cover this week uh, for lesson two, but uh, I was telling people earlier that uh, if we don't make it through everything this week, it's not a big deal. We can pick up where we leave off next week and just roll that into our lesson for next week. Um, Richard, can I get you to open us in prayer? Last week, we, uh, we began looking at some of the introductory material to uh, an early church history class. One of those things that is necessary for us to understand as we come to this class is what church history actually is, because that's the focus of this class, is church history. Uh, and church history is looking at the Lord's providence over time and how he has worked in building and preserving his church and uh, how he has worked within the church to uh, establish and, and uh, codify doctrinal truth over against error. So we're looking at the Lord's works of providence throughout history. Uh, this week, for, for our second lesson, we are still somewhat looking broad view, but we're narrowing it in and looking broad view over the patristic era, which is uh, another term of the early church. So if you remember, there were uh, basically uh, three different um, three different stages of church history that we divide this portion of church history into. There is the prelude, which is the apostolic church, uh, beginning at the uh, ascension of Christ and going to 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then there's the infant church, uh, which begins around 70 AD and goes to around 313 AD. And then following that is the imperial church, uh, which begins at 313 and goes to around 590 uh, so we're going to look at the uh, apostolic church first, 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. And we see the uh, foundation, the formation of 
this apostolic church in Acts chapter 1. Uh, we see that Paul, or, or not Paul, Luke is writing this letter in Acts 1 to Theophilus, uh, showing him all that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had begun to do and teach within the church. And this is what the church is. The church is that organization which holds to and promotes all that Christ has done and has taught us. Uh, whether that be Christ directly by His own words or whether that be Christ through His Spirit working in the writings of the other apostles who wrote Scripture, uh, the church is that institution that holds to and promotes all those things which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has done and has taught. Um, and the church really gets its solid formation as an entity following the resurrection of Christ and uh, His ascension into glory. And, and then even more than that, in His session at being seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we see that this exaltation of Christ, that He ascended into glory and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and there He reigns over all things, both nations and the church. Uh, there we see this exaltation of Christ in three different ways uh, in Scripture. Uh, three different proofs that Scripture gives of Christ's exaltation. And the first one we see is at Pentecost. Um, could someone read for me John 15, 26, and 27? And then someone else go ahead and get Acts 2, verses 32 and So here is the promise that at Christ's ascension in His exaltation that He would send the Holy Spirit to His people and that His people would bear witness of these things. And that is uh, what we see later on in Acts as the foundation of uh, the establishment of the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. Who has Acts 2? Yes, Jesus hath God raised up, wherever we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see in here. 
Okay, so we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, just as Christ promised in, in John that he would send forth that comforter. And here we have Peter in the sermon on the day of Pentecost um, proclaiming forth, bearing witness to the things of Christ, just as Christ had said would take place. Uh, and here really is where you see the formation of the New Testament church as a, as a unique entity and not, not tied to uh, the Jewish system. Another one of the historical proofs of Christ's exaltation is uh, the mission to the world. Someone read Acts 1.8 and then someone else go ahead and uh, have Romans 15, 18, and 19 ready. So Acts 1.8. Okay, so Christ promised that in his exaltation, the Holy Spirit would come unto his people. And it's for a purpose. It's not just so that they may have the Holy Spirit upon them. It is for the purpose of being his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. So Christ's exaltation is for the spreading of the gospel throughout the whole earth. That is the mission to the world. All right, Romans, who has that one? All right, so here is the Apostle Paul speaking of uh, being given the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's for the purpose of making the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, that from Jerusalem to roundabout all uh, Illyr unto Illyricum, he's preached the gospel of Christ. So we see that Christ in his exaltation by the giving of his spirit to his apostles has empowered them to go bring forth the gospel to the whole world. And then uh, another historical proof of Christ's exaltation is the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem, Matthew 24 and verses 2 and 3 and then down to verse uh, down and read verse 30 as well so Matthew 24 2 and 3 
And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon the earth that shall not be thrown down. And he sat down upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end of the world. Uh, verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so Christ here is setting up two bookends of the era that is to come. And the first is that not one stone shall remain here on top of itself, speaking to the fall of Jerusalem. And then the other bookend is his coming in glory um, as, as they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So that those things can only come about by Christ being exalted. The old has to be fully finished, meaning Christ has to be exalted and reigning in heaven in order for the destruction of the old to take place. That is the destruction of the temple. And then there must be, uh, Christ must be exalted in glory for him to then come in the, uh, on the clouds of heaven uh, at the last day. So Christ is setting up these two bookends to signify that what is about to take place is a new era. It's a new epoch of church history. The old has passed away. Here is the new. Uh, and that, is, that begins with the, uh, the, that full consummation of the new, or, or not consummation, that's a bad word. Uh, that full uh, realization of the new uh, replacing the old comes in, in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. So leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, there was a revolt among the Jews uh, in 66 AD. Uh, and that uh, led to a lot of political turmoil uh, between the Jews and their Roman captors. Remember at this time that, that Jerusalem, the Jewish people, Israel, uh, they were an occupied nation. Uh, they were not uh, their own political entity. They were not sovereign over their own affairs, but they were a vassal state of the Roman Empire, meaning that the Romans were in charge of uh, the affairs of the Jewish people. Uh, the Jews revolted against their Roman uh, uh, occupiers, and uh, that led to a, a, a span of time where you could say that it was essentially a, a civil war there in, in Israel. Uh, and it eventually culminated in the siege and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, 
this is when the Romans uh, sieged the city, meaning they surrounded it, cut off all of its supplies in and out, and then uh, eventually uh, brought about mass destruction of the city, including the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, the Romans did this as an effort to squash the rebellion because if there is nothing for these people to unite under, meaning their religion, then there is nothing for them to unite together against the Romans. Uh, so you destroy the culture of the people and you essentially destroy the people. That is, That was the view of the Romans. And so, if you recall in the book of Acts, uh, very often in the early stages of uh, the gospel expansion, the apostles would travel from city to city and would preach in the synagogues. Or they would be in Jerusalem and they would preach in the temple. Uh, or they would preach in Roman temples. Uh, as we see uh, Paul doing. Um, all of that went away, or, or most of that went away, uh, following this Jewish rebellion and the uh, squashing of it by the Romans. Uh, no more was there a temple for Christians to go gather in. Uh, most of the synagogues throughout the land uh, were either occupied by the Romans, meaning that the Roman government was very strict in, in making sure that they were not teaching uh, seditious ideology against the Roman Empire. Uh, or a lot of them uh, closed down out of fear of persecution. And this led to Christianity being identified more individually than as a, just a Jewish sect. Uh, because the Christians then began meeting on their own, outside of, of the synagogues or the temples or the Jewish activities. Uh, Christianity at this time and because of what happened there in 70 AD uh, really began to become its own individual identity within the Roman Empire. Uh, Mark Knoll, a famous church historian, uh, writes, the blows that Vespasian, uh, Titus, Hadrian, and other Roman general, generals rained down upon Jerusalem did not destroy the Christian church. Rather, they liberated the church for its destiny as a universal religion offered to the whole world. And we'll, we'll read about uh, those, and I believe that that says Titus should say Titius, T-I-T-I-U-S, Titius. Um, but we'll see these names as we move on. These are Roman emperors, Roman rulers, 
who really uh, persecuted the church in the early stages. Um, and what he's saying is that persecution of both the Jews and the Christians at that time didn't destroy the Christian church, but instead forced it to become its own solid identity and then spread outside of Roman-occupied territories uh, or to spread outside of those major cities within Roman-occupied territories. Um, most of the persecution in those early stages was happening in places like Jerusalem, like Ephesus, uh, like uh, Rome, uh, whereas some of the smaller regions, while yes, they may have significance in the Roman Empire, they weren't as affected uh, by the persecution during those early stages. And so that's why you see uh, Paul going to places like Illyricum. Illyricum was not a, uh, a major city within the Roman Empire. It had its importance, but it wasn't a place like Jerusalem or like Rome. Uh, and that's why you see the apostles going out to these places in order to share the gospel because there was less persecution in those regions. So that is the apostolic church. The foundations for what we're talking about began there in those, in those early stages. In the span of about 40 years, you have the solid establishment of the New Testament church as its own religious entity. Any questions or comments about, about that stage of early church history. All right, so moving on then to Act 1, which is the infant church from 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, till about 313 AD with the Edict of Milan that we talked about uh, briefly last week. Uh, so some characteristics of the infant church. What was it known for? Uh, well, the infant church was characterized by church expansion. The church exploded in growth during this time. Uh, the church grew from just a few thousand people at the beginning uh, that we see on the day of Pentecost to over 30 million Christians in the known world uh, right around the time of the signing of the Edict of Milan. That is incredible growth. Over the span of uh, 250 years, going from just a few thousand to over 30 million Christians. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, that would be difficult to look at um, 
probably. Yeah, yeah, probably somewhere around ten percent or so, maybe maybe a little less. Uh, remember, at this time, the world wasn't as populated as it is today. So, thirty million out of and, and, and this this is talking about the known world, which at that time spanned from. Uh, at the time it was called Gaul, which would be France today, over to uh, East Asia, Mo uh, Mongolia, China, uh, Russia, up in that area. So really that, that window, that stretch of land there, uh, and only up to you know, Germany in Europe. Uh, huh? So down into Spain, and then into northern Africa. Well, France is here. Spain is here. So I was I was categorizing Spain as south, even though it does expand west more western than France. Yeah, but at this time at this time the British Isles weren't. Uh, weren't being reached by uh, Christian missionaries yet. Um, and then you, you, you go down into northern Africa uh, in, in that region. So really, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly small window north and south, and then it really only spans from mainland Europe to the west uh, over to China in the east. Um, and so when you're when you're figuring in those numbers, you know, thirty million people spanned over that little of a region is quite impressive. Uh, and there were at this time pockets of larger groups of Christians. Obviously, the Middle East region had a lot more uh, because that's where it was founded. Uh, you see some of those early Christians fleeing persecution and going uh, a little further east into uh, Babylon, uh, into Iraq. Uh, so that's where you get a lot of your early Christian uh, records. Is it, it comes from Iraq. Um, up into what what's referred to as Kurdistan, even though that's not an officially recognized uh, nation. That's northern Iraq, um, and some of those other surrounding countries comprise uh, the the land of the Kurds, um, and that that entire region there had a very strong Christian presence in those early days as Christians fled east. Uh, fleeing persecution. Um, that a little bit further north uh, of Jerusalem, people fled up into that region, which would have been the Assyrian region. Uh, so Syria, um, so Syria was a little northeast. Uh, Damascus, north would be Assyria, so you would have places like Nineveh, uh, other, other 
regions and then on into what would be modern day Turkey, uh, which was part of the Roman Empire at that time. That's, that was called Asia Minor. Uh, and that's where places like Ephesus, uh, Caesarea Philippi, uh, those regions are, would be in, in the Turkey region, uh, or a, as it was called then, Asia Minor. So, so that was really the main hub, but then you had Christians that went down and began settling into uh, Northern Africa, and that became a hub as well, especially in Egypt. Uh, and as we'll see uh, when, we, when we begin talking about some of the issues in the early church, those regions were very influential in the early days, primarily because some of the worst heresies uh, to ever plagued the church began in some of those regions. Um, now, an interesting thing, during this time, this early stage of church expansion, uh, I mentioned that Christians fled into Assyria, into, into the region of Assyria, and I mentioned Nineveh. Now, if you remember, if you know your Bible, or if you uh, paid attention to our sermon series on Jonah, that's where Jonah went to, to proclaim the gospel in those days to the people of Nineveh, and they repented. Uh, but we see later on that Assyria uh, embraced once again its wickedness and was used by the Lord to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But uh, if you speak to Assyrian Christians today, they will tell you that the gospel was never that the true religion was never lost in Nineveh it was suppressed and then when the Christians came during this time they made the connection between the truth that they were told uh, by Jonah that was passed down through the generations of the faithful in in Assyria and connected that with this true religion of Christianity that they were being told by these Christian exiles. Uh, so many within the Assyrian church will tell you, we trace our heritage directly back to uh, Jonah bringing the gospel to us. Um, and the Assyrians were phenomenal at keeping records. And the Assyrian church actually claims to know the exact date in which Jonah proclaimed the gospel to them. And that's one of their festivals every year as, as, a, as a church. They celebrate the giving of the gospel by Jonah uh, every year. The Ethiopian church, the Coptic church in Ethiopia, celebrates the, uh, the, the Queen of Sheba. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you'll 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 notice that at in these early stages Christianity very much latched on uh, in Ethiopia. In fact, the earliest copy of scripture that we have, which predates uh, 
almost all of our manuscripts of the scripture and uh, actually predates some of those that are claimed as the earliest and best. Um, uh, it, the earliest Bible that we have is not a Greek Bible. Uh, the earliest New Testament that we have is not a Greek New Testament. It's what's called the Gies Bible. It's written in Gies, which is the ancient language of the Ethiopian people. And uh, it is a complete Bible, it can, or a complete uh, New Testament. It contains... Actually, I think it is the complete Bible. It contains all of all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and it uh, it contains some apocryphal books as well, uh, which is understandable. But uh, it's very interesting that if you if you read the Gies Bible, the translation of the Gies Bible, it is. Um, the Gies Bible is virtually identical to what we have in the received text. Uh, so let, do with that as you will. Uh, but it is interesting that uh, at, the, at the early stages of church history, Ethiopia was one of those that, that really was la uh, latched on to the Christian faith. Uh, it became one of those hubs of Christianity. Uh, you have the Coptics in Egypt, which became a hub of Christianity, and we'll see later that they fell into heresy, uh, like most of these early Christian groups did. There were elders here, who's now an elder in Elkhart, mm -hmm. grew up in Ethiopia. So that's, I know a little bit about it. All right, so... Uh, this early infant church is characterized by church expansion, uh, but it was also characterized by persecution from the pagan Romans. Uh, during those first 70 years, really, there was little persecution against uh, Christians from the Romans. There was persecution quite a bit from the Jews, but there was very little from the Romans. Um, Following the, the Jewish revolt and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Romans began to have a, quite a bit different view of these religious sects as they saw them and began uh, increasing the persecution of Christians. Uh, so... You can read in Scripture, uh, I have listed here Acts 7, verses 54 uh, through chapter 8, verse 3, uh, for persecution of the Jewish leaders, uh, uh, persecution by the Jewish leaders. But the first persecution of Christians organized by the Roman government was under the Emperor Nero in AD 64, after the great fire of Rome that took place entirely within the city of Rome. Uh, that's where you see the first persecution of Christians. There was a great fire in Rome. Nero, uh, Nero blamed the Christians for it. And so there was a great persecution of Christians. But it was confined only to the city of Rome. Uh, 
we don't see Roman persecution of Christians spread out until after the destruction of the temple. But then, persecution really ramped up. Uh, it's estimated that between 3,000 and 3,500 Christians were martyred by the Romans during this early church period. Now you may think, that's, that's, not, that, that's not that much. But you're only, you're only talking a span of about 200 years. Uh, and obviously travel wasn't as quickly uh, done at this time. Um, word didn't spread as quickly that there were groups of Christians meeting in an area at this time. Um, and so things did progress slower during this time period. But 3,000 to 3,500, you remember, do you remember what that total number of Christians was that I said it had grown to by the end of 313? 30 million. Okay. So we're talking... You know, if you're using that total and we're going to use this total, you're talking about 1% of all Christians were martyred. This isn't persecution. This is martyrdom. So this doesn't, this doesn't include those who were in prison, those who were beaten, uh, anything like that. This is only those who were killed for their faith. 1%. That's one in every 100 people. We have, we have congregations in our denomination who have about 300 people in their congregation. Could you imagine if three people in one congregation were put to death for being a Christian? That would have a major impact upon, uh, upon the, the rest of the believers. And that's what we see happens during this time is these martyrs actually have a major impact upon the rest of, of the believers and it actually uh, emboldens them. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I forgot who said it, but there's a quote that, that says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, that that as, as blood is spilled in the name of Christ, it, it actually causes the church to grow in, in an even greater way. Um, persecution almost always leads to greater expansion of the Christian faith. And we see that all throughout history. Uh, and, and that was the case here. So as Christians began to be more and more persecuted, they began spreading the gospel farther and farther. Uh, some fleeing the persecution. But then there were other people who witnessed the persecution of these Christians and said, that's real faith. 
I want to know about that. And so they came to faith in Christ by the testimony of the martyrs giving their lives for Christ. But uh, we know that as the church expands, that uh, increases its risk of uh, being drawn towards error. Uh, the more people you have together, the more differing opinions you're going to have together. And eventually, you get enough people together, someone's going to start espousing heresy. Uh, it's the sad way that things go. Uh, so another characteristic of this infant church was that it, was, it truly was marked by a lot of heresy within the church. Uh, Marcionism... Uh, began to be uh, espoused. It was uh, brought forth by a man named Marcion uh, who lived around 85 to 160 AD. So you can see uh, this fits right at the beginning stages of, of this infant church. He was a second century heretic and is the originator of Marcionism. He taught that the God of the Old Testament, whom he referred to as a demiurge or as an evil God, uh, he referred to him as that. And he taught that that God of the Old Testament was not the true God. That he was an evil God and that the true God was Jesus Christ who came to do away with that evil God of the Old Testament and to bring in this new religion of the New Testament. Uh, we, you do still hear this in some way, not, not quite as explicitly. Uh, you, do, you do hear some people say that... Uh, the God of the Old Testament was one of wrath and justice and anger, but the God of the New Testament is one of love. Uh, that's a, that's Marcionism being espoused. Um, huh? That's Mr. Stanley. Uh, yeah, to an extent. So Andy Stanley, uh, that's who Bob's talking to, Andy Stanley, uh, major megachurch pastor, um, really became came into hot water a couple of years ago because he, he made the statement that the church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament and to just focus on the message of the New Testament, which is one of love. Um, this is Marcionism. Uh, it's a softer form than what Marcion actually taught, but it's still Marcionism. I would argue that a lot of the, uh, the Campbellites, the Churches of Christ, that they teach a softened form of Marcionism as well with their uh, basically discounting the Old Testament and only focusing on the New. I've heard some Church of Christ members say, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We just look at the New. No, the Bible is 66 books, uh, not just 27. Uh, huh? Campbellite. Campbellite. Uh, so they they 
they they were founded by uh, Thomas Campbell during the Stone Campbell movement of the 1800s. Um, but the, this heresy is still alive and well today, although in, in softer forms. Uh, another heresy that was prominent at this time was Gnosticism. Uh, and it, it is the belief that the material or physical world is inherently evil and the spirit world is inherently good. Uh, the material world, including one's body, mind, spirit, and soul, is under the control of evil. And that there is a divine spark in some, but not all, humans, and is capable of being redeemed. Uh, they believe that salvation is through a higher secret knowledge, or uh, what's known as gnosis, uh, by some individuals. Uh, who come to know themselves and their destiny. Uh, this was primarily seen within uh, some of the cult movements of the early church period. Um, you, you read about archaeological evidence of finding these uh, evidences of... Uh, communities that were living out in the desert away from all forms of civilization. Or you read about archaeological evidence of these communities that were living in the caves and the mountains. Uh, most of these communities were Gnostics. Um, they, were, they were cults. They, they separated themselves from the rest of society uh, in their path towards secret knowledge. They they believed in, in dualism, the division of the material from the immaterial. Um, and, and Gnosticism really affected a lot of thought at this time in, in, in Greek literature. Uh, it, it's basically a... Uh, It's basically a twisting of Greek uh, metaphysical thought um, and, and applying it to religious ideology. Docetism uh, denied the full humanity of Christ. Uh, some within their sect taught that Jesus was only a phantom, uh, only appearing to have a body, that he was a ghost, that his body wasn't real. Um, others taught that Jesus had some sort of heavenly body, but not a real natural body of human flesh. So docetism uh, denied the incarnation of Christ, that Christ Jesus truly had a human nature and took on human flesh. And then the last heresy that I want to mention during this time, and don't worry, there are more heresies to come, uh, is what's called as monarchianism. And monarchianism holds that there is one God as one person, and that is God the Father. And there are two related schools of belief in monarchianism. 
The first one is called dynamic monarchianism. And then the second is called modal monarchianism. So dynamic monarchianism teaches that God is the Father and that Jesus Christ is only a man. They teach a form of what's known as adoptionism, that Jesus Christ was tested and that He passed and that uh, at the end He was then adopted by God the Father who gave Him certain supernatural powers. Uh, they teach that uh, most of them would say that this happened at Christ's baptism where he was adopted as the Son of God. Uh, they, and then they also teach that the Holy Spirit is merely a force of God the Father and not the third person of the Trinity. Um, dynamic monarchianism is still alive and well because there are still people that espouse adoptionism, that Christ Jesus became the Son of God at His baptism when the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove and uh, the voice of the Father was heard saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So they, they teach that it is at that point that Christ was adopted as the Son of God. Um, it's it's more individuals. Um, you see it you see it a lot within charismatic movements, uh, adoptionism, um, and it's really it's really a problem over in Africa with the Word of Faith movements over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's definitely something that a lot of liberals latch on to. Uh, even if even if institutionally they don't teach it, a lot of liberals will hold to this view of Christ. Um, and then modal monarchianism, which is one that you may, meet, may be familiar, more familiar with, teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are just three modes of the single person who is God. Uh, so modal monarchianism is most commonly referred to as modalism. And it's basically that there is one God and he kind of has this costume chest of, of different outfits. And when he wants to portray himself as God the Father, he puts on the God the Father outfit and then portrays himself as that. But then he takes that off and he puts on the God the Son outfit and he, he portrays himself as that. Well, then he may take that off and put, him, put on the God the Holy Spirit outfit and portray himself as that. Um, it's three expressions, three modes of the one God, not three distinct persons. Yes, sir? They use uh, the our Bible? Yeah, they, they use the same Bible. So why did they, how do they justify that? Yeah, don't ask them that because uh, they 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 argue around it. Um, so uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are modalists, um, and and they they will argue that uh, 
at creation, it wasn't the Holy Spirit who was hovering over the waters. It was a spirit. Uh, they, they would argue that when Christ is praying to the Father, uh, that uh, he was only doing that as an example given to the disciples. Not that he was actually talking to someone else. Because they, they, they actually argue, well, it's absurd that Jesus would be talking to himself. Yeah, yeah, their, uh, what is it, New World Translation, um, it, it, it does twist the, the translation of certain texts in order to uh, help further along these, these notions. So like uh, in John 1, the word became, or, or in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, in the, in the New World Translation, they say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Very subtle. Um, but when they be more categorized as Syrians, as They they have they have kind of some tendencies of both. Uh, so yes, they would say that Jesus was a created being, um, which would fall under Arianism. Um, but then they would say, but the Son is just a a form in which the God expresses Himself. So they they would actually distinguish between. Jesus, the the man, and the Son of God. Uh, so they they would say that that the the man Jesus was a created being who was then ex used as the expression of God at that time. Uh, so it's basically this is a crude way to put it. The man Jesus was a meat suit that God would use in his uh, bag of costumes to be able to portray himself a certain way. Um, now, when we get to when we get to uh, Mormons, that's where you see Arianism really being being promoted. But Jehovah's Witnesses are, are more modalist than they are Aryan, even though they have some Aryan tendencies. Um, modalism is also uh, found within Oneness Pentecostalism. Um, so they, they deny the Trinity. They'll outright tell you they deny the Trinity because they believe in one. Uh, but they believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit but they would say that those are all expressions of the one God. Um, it's also very popular within other charismatic movements and the Word of Faith movement. Um, 
you may remember or, or know of a, of a very popular uh, televangelist, T.D. Jakes. Um, T.D. Jakes has in the past made statements espousing uh, a modalist understanding of the Godhead, uh, though he has sought to clarify that in more recent years and has done an incredibly poor job at it. Um, but he, he does appear to be a modalist. Um, any questions regarding uh, the heresies at the time? Um, we, will, we will pick up here uh, next week looking at the apologists of the church um, and move forward. And we should be able to hopefully finish this lesson out next week. Um, Matt, can I get you to close us in prayer? Well, thank you once again that you bring us here and show us how um, that man can be unfaithful, but yet, Father, you are faithful, um, that your truth will uh, make you stand out and your witness uh, hell will prevail against the church. We pray, Father, that uh, we would continue to see that throughout this. Amen.